Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today I'm speaking with Ina Muller. Ina is a postdoctoral researcher in the Environmental Policy Group at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Ina completed her PhD in the Department of Political Science at Lund University in Sweden, where her thesis was titled The Emergent Politics of Geoengineering. She also has a master degree in environmental studies and sustainability science from Lund University and a bachelor degree in political science and public administration. She currently works together with Professor Arti Gupta on anticipation, governance, and transparency in the politics of climate change. Her principal focus has been on the case of climate engineering, which describes large-scale interventions into natural systems that are envisioned to stabilize global temperatures. She continues to study the reactions of actors throughout society as the idea of geoengineering the climate becomes more normalized in climate science. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. It's nice to connect finally. Uh, thanks a lot for inviting me. Yeah, you have a very interesting thesis topic. I'm, I'm really interested to get into what the focus of your thesis was. Uh, you studied at Lund University for your PhD, but maybe you can first give us an overview of where you studied leading up to that, and then give us an overview of what your topic for your PhD thesis was. Sure. Yeah, so um, I started studying uh, political science and public administration in Konstanz in Germany. Uh, that was for three years, and in between I did a, a little internship for half a year with uh, the United Nations Environment Program in Brussels, and, and then decided I wanted to go more into sort of environmental politics as such. But it was kind of difficult to find a program in Germany, or at least there weren't so many, and so I applied in Sweden, in Lund, and then I ended up doing uh, Loomis, the same master's degree that you did where we met, basically. So a master's on sustainability science or sustainability studies and environmental science. Um, and in that period, while I was uh, studying in Sweden, I met uh, Ruben Sondervan, who used to be the executive director of the Earth System Governance Network, and he was working in Lund. And he was looking for a research assistant um, to help him out with uh, preparing his presentations and the things he needed to do on his international travels. And one of the focuses or one of the foci that he had uh, was geoengineering. Um, and that was kind of the first time that I heard of the topic. I had never really encountered it before. But uh, as I was working for him as a research assistant, I sort of got into the subject area and learned what it was, um, basically uh, learned that there were a bunch of people who were thinking about uh, alternative approaches towards stabilizing the global climate by basically intervening into uh, the Earth's climate system uh, using technology. And um, so I did a little bit of background research for him and prepared some of his presentations and uh and then near yeah as i was sort of heading towards the end of the master's program and sort of just begun the master's thesis there was this uh job opportunity at the political science department in lund which called for someone who was going to do either research on red plus so on uh deforestation and forest degradation or on geoengineering and yeah i applied and i said i could technically do both but i had a little bit of background in geoengineering due to this um this uh job with ruben and yeah and then i was lucky and i got it and i started working at the political science department and yeah looked at the the governance uh, <laughs> the international governance of of geoengineering technologies was that also a part of your master's thesis topic i can't remember what your focus was there no, not at all. Uh, for my master's thesis, I was looking at biofuels and um, 
at uh, uh, sort of how uh, whether countries like the or uh, regions like the European Union that have certain um, import and export standards for their products, whether that has an effect on um, the way that production processes go in other countries. So it was really unrelated. It was much more related to what I had done in my bachelor's thesis, which was also about European Union countries and sort of uh, environmental regulation. And so, yeah, geoengineering was really new waters for me, completely uh, deep end of the pool, basically. Yeah. Did you, you had, I mean, we did the same study program, which was, I would say, kind of an interdisciplinary environmental and sustainability science uh, masters and how was that transition for you going into the political science department? So going back into more of a disciplinary oriented focus, was there any challenges? Was it was it more interesting? Was it more focused? Mm, for me, it was kind of almost as if um, the interdisciplinary program had been a bit of an excursion because I came from political science, so I was I was kind of uh, looking forward to going back into a more disciplinary environment. Um, just maybe because, I don't know, I was missing a bit of the more in-depth theory and, uh, and sort of the, the more philosophical part of it, maybe. I think, uh, in, in, in our interdisciplinary program, I learned a lot of things and I love being around with people, uh, from different backgrounds and different disciplines. But I think as many of our colleagues, I had this feeling of sort of always surfing at the surface, <laughs> like, um, like, dipping into different topics, but never really getting the chance to go very deep into something. And I was missing that, I think, a little bit. So I was quite happy to go back into political science. But of course, it's a whole different culture. So while, um, yeah, while Loomis was kind of like a happy family kind of style, you know, everybody's relaxed and it's just nice to hang out and everybody knows each other and, and, and use, yeah, I don't know. It was just a very relaxed kind of atmosphere. Political science is a lot more professional kind of, and it, and it took me a long time to really integrate maybe, um, and get used to that environment again. So that was a bit of a challenge. Maybe. maybe this is more a reflection on the Swedish system compared to maybe the German or the U.S. or the Canadian system or different Ph.D. systems around the world is how are Ph.D. students kind of integrated into the, the faculty or the, the department in Sweden? Are you treated, you know, is it more is that you have a student mentality or is it more that you're a colleague in a research mentality? And then what kind of you know, support structures did they have for Ph.D. students in, in the political science department there? Yeah, so I think Sweden, if, if I would suggest to anyone to do a PhD, I would suggest to do it in Sweden, because <laughs> it's really, <laughs> it's really an excellent structure that they have. You're both, you have b the advantages of both being a colleague, a research, like a full research employee, because you have four years time to basically just write your PhD and, and do courses and you're paid for that. Um, but then you also have the opportunity or you're actually encouraged to work for the department in terms of teaching, administration, um, yeah, taking some kind of like representative roles in different committees. But that time is added to your four years. So you basically, you can have a contract for up to five years um, just sort of messing around with your PhD uh, work and that's a really nice um, sort of stretch of time in which you you get a decent salary uh, on which to live and yeah it feels like you have the yeah the benefits of both worlds because you're you have the rights of a student but you also have the rights of an employee and you don't have so many obligations <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you, you can basically take it, it. It depends a little bit on you, at least in that department, on how much you integrate yourself and, and where you what you take part in and, and whether you sort of decide to become a representative on these committees, for example, and whether you decide to learn Swedish because it's kind of important um, to to sort of get integrated into the whole system and into the university politics and, you know, understand what's going on. But there is a lot of room for really becoming a, a very central or like important colleague in the system. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. How much uh, coursework was required as part of the PhD program there? And then was any of the teaching required as well? Or was that more on a voluntary basis where you could yeah, volunteer to get the skills and the training for the courses uh, that you were interested in? For teaching, that was all voluntary. So um, you sometimes it was a bit of a problem to actually get teaching hours because you were a little bit dependent on your supervisor or someone around you who was giving a course who would sort of uh, make sure that you were integrated. So that was um, sometimes a bit problematic for some uh, fellow PhD students to, to get adequate or enough teaching hours uh, to gain experience. Um, and on the course side, if I remember correctly, we had 60 credits of coursework uh, to do. So um, I don't know, that would maybe translate into, I don't know, like... Uh, 10 courses or something, depending, I mean, on how many credits you collect. But you could, yeah, you could do some at the political science department um, with, like, bigger cohorts of PhDs coming in. If you're, like, five, six people as one cohort, then they will give uh, courses at the political science department. But, of course, you can also take within the social science, well, other social science departments. And I had the, well, I was coming in alone, uh, I didn't have a cohort with me, so a lot of the courses I did were abroad or outside of Lund University. So I went to the States and I went to the ECPR courses. These are like the European Consortium for Political Research. They they give uh, they give these methods courses every summer and every winter. And I, yeah, I did a lot of methods courses just because I found it interesting. I wanted to ask what the spectrum of methods that were present in the department from a mix from quantitative to qualitative, and then what were the methods that you used or, or used in the thesis? Uh, in Lund, the spectrum is really broad. So uh, I think that's quite special for Lund University because as far as I understand in other universities like Gothenburg, for example, or Uppsala, it's, it's either quantitative or qualitative mostly, but in uh, in Lund, you really have everything. You have sort of the comparativists who do very, uh, yeah, go much more into the statistical quantitative approach uh, towards, I don't know, comparing countries or uh, studying voter behavior, um, things like this. But then you also have the complete sort of other end of the spectrum with people doing discourse analysis and, uh, yeah, critical political economy, uh, and then you have sort of us institutionalists who are somewhere in between, who dabble a little bit in both uh, worlds. And I was actually, uh, I was supervised by uh, Fari Borselli on the one hand, who's an institutionalist, uh, kind of on environmental governance. And then also by Johannes Lindvall, who's really a comparativist and much more into the statistics and sort of quantitative, quantitative field. And um, in my thesis, I also used a mix of methods. So I started with a... Uh, social network analysis. So I was studying um, the group of, of scientists or like stakeholders who were involved 
uh, in developing the geoengineering concept and idea, people who had been uh, working on the topic and who had been attending conferences and who is basically sort of uh, who is the, yeah what was the network consisting of people who were working on this subject and where did they come from and what kind of backgrounds did they have. So that was one method that I used, but I also interviewed um, policymakers uh, and diplomats who were uh, involved in the international negotiations or in the environmental policymaking of their own country, but who were also sort of affiliated or at least knew about geoengineering um, and yeah, literature reviews. So uh, a mix of methods, basically. Yeah, you mentioned you, you studied the politics of geoengineering. Maybe we can take a step back and you can just give us a little bit of an overview of why that topic is is relevant and important at the moment. And then, you know, what was your entry point or the research question into what you were trying to understand about it? Yeah. So from today's perspective, I think it's, it's getting more relevant because um, a lot of people are talking about a climate crisis. That we're sort of experience, we're going through. I mean, this climate crisis is becoming more and more recognized and realized, um, and that opens up, or some people say that that opens up uh, the doors for more radical approaches towards climate change. And radical, not in the sense that we like, I mean, change sort of uh, behavior or change social systems, but radical in terms of technological. Um, uh, yeah, using technologies to actually change the system that we're in. And, um, and perhaps the most, so maybe just step backwards to explain what geoengineering is, because uh, maybe not everyone's familiar with it. It basically describes large scale interventions into the global climate system in order to stabilize temperatures. And uh, usually in the literature, um, scientists tend to distinguish between carbon dioxide removal technologies. So those are technologies or approaches. They're not all really technological, but they're approaches to um, draw more CO2 or draw out CO2 from the atmosphere and store it somewhere. So that can be via afforestation, um, which is more for uh, maybe a natural process or enhancing a natural process. But that can also be via very technological approaches, such as direct air capture, which are basically machines that filter the air and draw CO2 out um, and then sort of uh, compress it and store it somewhere or use it for making products. Um, and uh, so that's one group of technologies. And that, that group is becoming um, very present right now, especially through uh, the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, um, in the last report that they brought out on the one5 degree goal. Uh, they had quite a lot of models that used so-called negative emissions technologies. And those negative emissions technologies are nothing else than carbon dioxide removal, which, if done at a large enough scale, is geoengineering. So that's sort of one group. Uh, and the other group is called, or has been called for a long time, solar radiation management, or now called solar geoengineering which is the idea to increase uh, the reflectivity of the planet. So you want to, uh, instead of drawing CO2 out from the atmosphere, you want to reflect incoming sunlight. So you have less sunlight in the system and therefore less warming. Uh, and there again, there are different approaches. The most discussed one perhaps is um, the stratospheric aerosol injection. So the idea to imi imitate volcanic eruptions. So when you have a lot of volcanic activity, 
you have aerosols that get flung up into the stratosphere and that uh, act as a sort of mirror, a layer of mirroring particles that then um, yeah, reflect sunlight back out into space. And a lot of people have been talking about that, but there's also other approaches such as um, a marine cloud brightening where you uh, basically spray seawater into the air and encourage the formation of clouds and thereby uh, get a more reflective planet or um, at least in some areas. And this is also being discussed um, as a more local method, for example, for cooling the Great Barrier Reef or cooling certain regions that are especially exposed to global warming. And uh, this is a lot more generally seen as a lot more controversial. Um, but I think that's mainly the case because people always talk about stratospheric aerosol injection because that's a really sort of large-scale uh, intervention. And on the CDR side, people talk more about afforestation or bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which also has its problems but is more mm, regional or more closer to what we already know. Um, and those approaches that have been more controversial on that side, such as ocean iron fertilization, basically dumping a lot of iron into the ocean and making big algal blooms and thereby withdrawing CO2, that's not really on the table so much anymore. That's just been sort of mm, pushed out because it was too controversial. So it really depends on what technology you're talking about and yeah, what scale you're also talking about. So it has to be big. It has to be really a big scale in order to call it geoengineering. Did you focus on one of those particular technologies or groups of folks, or did you look at the whole spectrum? For me, I looked at the whole spectrum. So I was interested. My research question was basically, why are we talking about geoengineering in the first place? Because it was such a controversial subject. It had been subject to a longstanding taboo. So scientists were really um, disencouraged or they couldn't really even talk about it. I mean, it was whispered about in corridors, but nobody actually wanted to engage with it properly for a long time um, because it was just so counterintuitive to um, sort of the normal environmental policy uh, that we are familiar with in terms of, yeah, and also mitigation and adaptation. It's all about reducing CO2 emissions. It's all about changing our behavior. So geoengineering was really something that for a long time nobody actually wanted to talk about. Um, but then all of a sudden it sort of just keeps popping up and it's, it, it keeps persisting. Like this idea keeps persisting. It doesn't die out. <laughs> Somebody, I think I was talking to Robert Cohane, one of the big international relations scholars in, in our field, and he was saying, like, it's, it's this ghost that sort of haunts uh, climate change politics. It's always there. It doesn't go away. And I was interested to understand why it was getting stronger um, beyond just the fact that things are getting, uh, you know, things are obviously getting worse. Is it really that it's just because things are getting worse, or is there a more... Uh, is there a different mechanism behind it, like a, a social sort of some sort of reinforcement mechanism that that lets people allows people to talk about this despite the fact that there was such a taboo on it for a long time? So I was interested in the social mechanisms. Looking through your abstract earlier, I was saying, I mean, how does it become an object of governance? How does something which is somewhat abstract, as you said, become something which is tangible and salient and and something which is actually discussed regularly and actually brought up? And what was the process for you to understand that that change? And what was it, I guess, was a temporal perspective? Did you look at how that changed over time? Um, and what was the methods that you, you used to kind of unpack that? Yeah, definitely. So I started 
of course, just with reading. Uh, well, no, actually, maybe I started with talking to someone. <laughs> so in the first couple of weeks, um, I talked to a scientist named Will Burns, uh, and he works in, I think, I'm not, I'm gonna get it wrong, but I think in, well, in the US, and I'm not, American University, as far as I know, at least that was at the, at the time that we were, uh, discussing this. And I talked to him and asked about what, what do you find is the most interesting thing about geoengineering? And he said, like, well, the fact that it doesn't die, it doesn't go away. People keep talking about it, it keeps getting stronger. Um, and so I started reading about it and I went back into old documents, kind of, uh, 1980s, 1990s, when this was first coming up and how were people talking about it then and who was writing about it and in what context was it being written about? How was it called? Uh, what were the names being used for it and and just sort of tracing back through time um or from yeah whatever direction you you want to go but basically going yeah going back into time and and trying to understand how the conversation around geoengineering had changed um and especially sort of what words were being used and and what um what descriptors were being used, what metaphors were being used and, and the narratives around all of it. And then I realized that actually it's a very small group of people who are writing about this. It's not like, I mean, even though it seems like the conversation is really growing and, and, and it's becoming much more present in, um, in our well daily lives. I mean, sometimes it's coming, it comes on television or it's being discussed in the IPCC report or policymakers sort of mention it. Um, even though it's become such a thing, the people who, who write about it and who speak about it are still always the same kind of people. It's a small group. And then, and then I decided, okay, maybe it'd be interesting to map this group and to figure out who's actually in, in that network. Uh, and so I used, um, conference attendance lists. So, uh, all the lists that I could find. Uh, first I mapped out all the conferences that were out there. Uh, since, I don't know, the first conference in 2000 and oh, the first bigger conference was in 2000 and 2008, as far as I know, and there was the Asilomar conference um, in the US, but there were several smaller workshops that had taken place before, and I, I tried to get um, the attendance list for all of those that I could find. In the end, I had around 60, uh, 60 uh, conferences and workshops with attendance lists and use those to make a social network analysis or to do a social network analysis and to map the network over time. So uh, which groups of people had been involved, where did they, what, what countries were they kind of affiliated with, uh, were there different types of groups? I mean, did they interact with each other? Were there, um, did they all come from one seed of people or, uh, or were there parallels going on? Things like this. Uh, and so, yeah, I, in the end, I sort of figured out that basically there were only three countries really involved in the conversation. Uh, one of those, one of the most prominent networks was, uh, the US network, which is basically where the whole idea had originated from. But there was also quite a prominent network in the United Kingdom, uh, and then also in Germany, because Germany had sort of set up this um, critical research program through the, DFG, uh, Deutsche Forschungsgesellschaft, Gemeinschaft, well, one of the big founders, and that had been going on for a long time. So that had built a network of people around it itself. And each group had a different way of talking about geoengineering. There were really, if you, if you saw the networks on the one hand, but also linked it to the 
the documents that are uh, the way that they spoke about geoengineering, what they, what they published about it, there were definitely differences in terms of worldview, maybe, or in approach towards um, doing research on this. But it was, in the end, quite a small network with about 200 core people. I mean, like people who really regularly attend conferences and present things. And uh, even over that long period of time. So although there are, in the end, maybe thousands of participants uh, in these workshops and so on, the core that's at the center of, of, of publishing and doing research on this is no more than 200 or 300 people. You mentioned here that you know the role that these authoritative scientific assessments play, and perhaps it's linked to those individuals. I'd be interested to hear what you think about yeah, the role of ongoing science and if the science itself in, in the continual study of geoengineering as a potential solution and how that continues to shape and perhaps strengthen the reason why it continues uh, to be a political topic. Definitely. Yeah. So so the last paper that I worked on was about, not, not the last one, but the third paper I worked on was about these um, authoritative scientific assessments and basically saying that a single scientist working on geoengineering is perhaps not so impactful, but if a small group of scientists manage to publish under the name of an authoritative scientific organization, such as the Royal Society or the National Academy of Sciences, um, or, uh, yeah, the yeah, there's several sort of uh, examples. So this is the UK and the US, but um, if if people manage to publish under a name of, un, under such an authoritative name, then of course the idea that um, is put into that report and the way that it's framed becomes quite influential. So um, one of the reports that we were studying was the Royal Society report. This is a very prominent report that came out in 2009 about geoengineering. It was the first kind of all-encompassing report that was trying to address geoengineering from all sides, and uh, including the governance issues. And in this report, they had chosen this differentiation between CDR and SRM, this carbon dioxide removal, and solar radiation management technologies on the other yeah, like making this division. And from that point on, everybody referred to this report and basically reinforced um, the definitions that they had used, which were not obvious at that point, um, because there were several definitions floating around, uh, several ways of conceptualizing geoengineering. But um, but the Royal Society report became the central document that everybody who worked on geoengineering would refer to in their introduction and use that as a framing, as a way to frame the subject and to frame the problem. Um, and and you can see that again and again, uh, then later on when you had other authoritative uh, assessments coming out under big names, that was the National Academy of Sciences, but also the IPCC, for example, different people would, would like, when, when talking about geoengineering, they would refer to one of these reports. So the Americans would mostly refer to the National Academy of Sciences report because it was sort of their national thing. Um, and then the IPCC report, when, when they started talking about geoengineering, that was also then used as a frame of reference to define what people were talking about when they talked about geoengineering. So these reports have a lot of influence in terms of shaping the way that we conceptualize a problem or, or an object and making it into this object. And that's what we mean by an object of governance, that something that is just an idea that's just floating around, that's quite fragmented, where many people have an, have different sort of concepts of, it becomes more tangible if an, if a, an authoritative scientific report 
frames it in a certain way, uses that word and defines it in a certain way and, and gives it certain characteristics. It says these are the problems, these are the potential solutions, these are the ways that we have to go forward. It becomes an object uh, that's politically relevant, even though it might not exist yet. Like in the case of geoengineering, those technologies, most of them, they don't exist yet. They, they're, they're, there's maybe a few small prototypes somewhere, there's a few scientific experiments going on, but there's nothing nothing that would resemble the actual technological intervention, nothing at that scale. And nobody's tried it yet. It's all sort of in the minds of researchers, but it's become a political object through mm, the endorsement, through the authority that science gives it uh, and, 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 and how it pre it's being presented as a, sol as a potential solution to the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, what can we learn there about the relationship between science and maybe the best way of saying it's non-scientific public or, or policymakers or the way that it's framed in the public perception. I mean, what, what are some of the more, I mean, what did you find in this particular example of geoengineering, which we maybe can yeah, extract about, about how those narratives are shaped within science and then communicated outside of them and then how they maybe take on a life of their own and they become adopted into, into a broader non-scientific discussion? Yeah, um, I think this is very applicable to uh, almost all areas that we have in terms of environmental governance. All governance objects uh, are somehow shaped at some point by an authoritative actor. And especially in environmental politics, this is often a scientific authority because many of the environmental problems that, I mean, many of them we're only aware of through scientific work. Um, and I think for the, for somebody reading these reports, it seems like, you know, this is, uh, well, this seems like a, like a, like a, you know, someone to trust, someone trustworthy, someone believable, uh, an organization that's been endorsed by, um, by, by countries, by, uh, by commu uh, communities of scientists over many hundreds of years. This is an authoritative body. And if they say something about this topic, then that means it has to be true or correct or factual. So then I rely on the information that this authoritative body uh, gives me. But um, but behind the scenes, you often see that it's not it's not like the entire scientific community gets together and decides consensually on what how exactly this is going to be formulated in that particular report. It's usually a small group of people who are experts in that field and who have published a lot in that field. So they they might already themselves have some sort of um, incentive to push forward the field even more because. If you're an expert in a certain area, the more the area grows, the more publications you will have, the more funding and so forth. So, so the trust and the, mm, the visibility that this authoritative organization gives to the concept is, is basically is supporting whoever is part of writing that report. And then you have to go back to find out who, yeah, who are the ones invited to write these reports? Those are the experts. They're the ones who already put it on an agenda a longer time ago. So it's just a small group of um, of scientists. I'm not saying that they have any sort of yeah yeah vested. Well, maybe to some extent they probably have vested interest in in getting this idea forward. But I think it's important to to understand that that it's not like a this not the entire scientific community coming together and consensually agreeing on what exactly it is that we're going to do now here. It's usually a small group of experts. Um, and and then it it I think it's quite important from a democratic perspective to 
uh, well, to think about who is invited to writing these kinds of reports. Uh, is it really just the experts on the field, on the topic that we want, uh, and, and, and just from one particular perspective or one particular discipline? Or um, should we also maybe include people who are not experts in that field and who can sort of ask critical questions? And there's some... There's some examples of reports where this has actually taken place, where where you have a larger group of people somehow working with geoengineering, but very, very different worldviews and very different perspectives on it and very different um, uh, opinions on it also. So there's one um, by the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment. Uh, it's called uh, it's Chetri et al. 2018, so it uh, came out not so long ago. But there, they really they write in their introduction on how difficult it was to actually come to a consensus because people had such different ideas and opinions about what's good and what's bad about geoengineering. And I think those kinds of approaches are important. So we we should you know try and encourage that more these more interdisciplinary approaches. Yeah, did you draw on any particular existing environmental governance theory or political science or, or governance theory, or did you take more of a grounded theory approach in the work? Um, I went a little bit into um, network theory and uh, and sort of uh, complex systems, kind of like applying a complex systems approach to a social uh, social environment. So that was maybe a little bit new. Um, so just trying to understand how networks work, but that relied also a lot on the epistemic communities literature uh, and also on how uh, norms sort of proliferate and, and, and get built, like how does a norm become something? And that that's sort of from Finnemore and Sicking, those are old international ones, old relatively. I mean, they've been around for like 20 years. And theories about norms in international relations and about epistemic communities. So that's the IR bit. Um, but I also went into science and technology studies, which was more about sort of the co-production between um, policy making on the one hand and science making on the other hand. So the interdependency between politics and science, seeing science not as a sort of independent um, actor that just delivers information to policymakers, but rather that this is a, a, um, a system that influences each other. So politics gives the, uh, or yeah, the, the, the political structure gives the incentives for what kind of science is going to be done. And, and then science, on the other hand, gives the ideas and the, uh, and the concepts with which policymakers then continue make, doing their work. So it's like, a, uh, yeah is dependent um, and then I also worked with frame analysis so uh, that's more of a how people uh, use frames to further either their own interests or to or latch on to frames that are already existing so that the idea how you frame something how you conceptualize something uh, has implications for what kind of decisions you make and and there's some people who use this explicitly who change frames and who adapt frames to make them more um, politically acceptable or like more attractive to a certain constituency and the constituency can then be also policymakers. Um, but there's also those who follow who are not sort of aware of the differences in frames that are there and just use whatever's out there, what seems most authoritative. So those are maybe three 
three pillars of, of theory that I used. I'm also interested in this idea of, of institutional fit. And I'm looking here that your, your fourth paper and then the thesis talks a bit about problem definition and then institutional fit and then how that matches or how the, the idea of geoengineering matches what is expected from different government actors. And how do you see institutional fit in, as a concept or in, in playing a role here? Yeah, so this paper is just coming out in global environmental politics. I'm quite uh, excited about that. It'll be out in May. And uh, institutional fit here I use a little bit differently from how it's usually used in environmental policy. So um, if we follow Oren Young, for example, who put forward one idea of institutional fit was that the institution has to fit the problem, right? So there's a, there's a certain objective problem that's out there, an environmental problem that's out there, and in order for politics to be effective, the institution has to be designed in a way that, that fits that problem. But in the paper that I wrote, I take sort of the inverse view and say that there is no objective problem um, Every problem that we talk about is always framed in one way or another. So it depends on how you define the problem. And, uh, and policymakers often work in an institutional context that's already set. So there's an existing institutional structure. Um, there are conventions out there. There are secretariats. There are agreements. There are norms. And these structures... Uh, need to be navigated. So a, a policymaker needs to fit in or make sure that uh, he or she understands the structure that they're working in. Um, and then in order to address a problem, that problem needs to be sort of redefined in order to fit the institutional structure. Um, and and I was in the paper, I was looking at how policymakers do that with geoengineering because many uh, of the definitions and concepts um, around geoengineering are still very controversial or they don't fit th the structure that the policymaker is, is situated in. And so they try to adapt either the problem definition, saying that, okay, um, well, Either, oh, we're not going to talk about geoengineering anymore because it's uh, controversial and we're not going to talk about CDR, but we're going to talk about greenhouse gas, um, oh, GGR, green, green, greenhouse gas reductions. So just invent a new term that's sort of completely divorced from the whole geoengineering uh, talk and, and that will make it more politically acceptable. That's one way of, of just adjusting the, the problem definition. Uh, but you can also try and adjust the structural context. So if, for example, there is some problem that you cannot really uh, redefine or like something that's so central like the stratospheric aerosol injection solar geoengineering and you feel like you still want to address that then you have to think about what kind of structural context would be um, what would be needed in order to bring that up into to an international agenda and uh, and many of the policymakers I talked to were saying okay you need a very uh, legitimate uh, actor to do this and in the best case a group of actors from around the world that have um, strong climate legitimacy in the sense that they're either small island developing states or least developed countries or countries that are really sort of vulnerable from climate change or countries that have um, have made significant efforts to combat climate change and that say okay this is not enough we need to sort of go down that pathway and this is exactly what happened um uh, at the UNEA conference, the United Nations Environment Assembly, um, in 2000, was it that 2019? Yeah, that was last year, where a bunch, like a, a sort of a consortium of countries around Switzerland, many of them developing countries, and really not sort of very 
no great powers uh nobody who would who would have like a you know some sort of legacy in having a big impact on the climate they all came together and tried to put geoengineering on the table um as a discussion point and and say like guys we need to this is becoming a bigger issue we need to somehow address it we need to make sure this doesn't get ahead of us uh we need to do maybe some sort of scientific assessment to get everybody on the same page that we can discuss it um but in the end that was blocked by major powers like the united states and saudi arabia and brazil um but those are the ways that policymakers try and navigate this you know like either adjust the problem definition or adjust the structure and we can learn that i think that is applicable to almost um yeah anything uh anything that you want to bring into uh the arena of environmental politics requires this kind of fit uh, if it if it is to be discussed in an institutional context it needs to fit the institutional context to some degree where does geoengineering fit now in terms of the political landscape of climate change policies in general i mean how much of a role is it playing is it still relatively a small consideration amongst those who are discussing practical solutions, for example, at the UNFCCC? Or is it is it gaining considerable momentum as, as something which we could should seriously focus on? It, it kind of depends on what group uh, you're talking about. So um, in terms of carbon dioxide removal, this seems to be very integrated already into the whole sort of approach of, of talking about net zero and um, and it's not about sort of going down to zero emissions. It's about balancing sources and sinks. And this is very much, I mean, it was, this fit much more into the UNFCCC context because sources and sinks were already something that countries had been discussing for a long time. And so the idea to enhance source, uh, to enhance uh, carbon sinks by afforestation or um, ecosystem restoration, things like this, that, that was, that was something yeah that was acceptable there was no discussion about that no problem um and so the idea of negative emissions and carbon dioxide removal and so forth that's that's quite um i would say that's becoming more established uh and maybe even mainstream uh in the in the climate politics in in the negotiations through the ipcc but also through the unf triple c uh, so that type of geoengineering is somehow already being accepted. Now it's just a matter of a question of what are going to be the side effects if you start implementing this at a really large scale. Um, when it comes to solar radiation management, we haven't really seen much in terms of political activity yet. Um, the IPCC did mention it in its 1.5 degree report, uh, not in the summary for um, for policymakers, but in one of the chapters on uh, on solutions or like approaches forward, um, where they where they at least describe the technologies uh, and say that this is not. I mean, there's still a lot of research to be done on this, so we can't actually make any judgment on whether it's good or bad or desirable or whatever. But they were calling for more research. Um, and I think there are some things going on sort of behind closed doors that I can't really, that I've heard from people. <laughs> there are things, <laughs> things happening where some countries are trying to put, um, 
like the enhancement, like reflective enhancement um, or uh, yeah, radiation reduction measures or however they call it. There's different words going around, but basically what they mean is uh, enhancing reflectivity. Um, where this is trying to be integrated or linked with a carbon market system. So that if you, if you enhance reflectivity or if you, yeah, uh, reduce the incoming radiation somehow, then that should be included, um, as a way to offset your carbon emissions. And I think there are negotiations going on in the ISO, in the International Standardization Organization, uh, where this has come up and uh, where some of the policymakers that I know are engaging with and being very frustrated because certain countries are bringing this in and it's not very public and uh, they don't really know how to how to deal with it because it seems like behind yeah behind closed doors this is becoming more established makes me think about your sampling difficulties or challenges that you might have had were you able to get a hold of of different policymakers and those who are working intensively in the field or was it a challenge there to to one, get a hold of people, and then two, to get them to kind of reveal or to answer the questions about the that you want to know about this for your research. Certainly, it was really a challenge um, because geoengineering is not a subject that's being discussed in that way in a political uh, context or in a policymaking context. It's not like you can call up a ministry and say, hey, do you have anybody working on geoengineering? <laughs> They're like, no, we don't even know what it is. And it's really, really few people who who are actually engaging with this from a political perspective and especially from a holistic kind of perspective. There might be some working on uh, CCS, for example, or some might be working on biofuels and some might be working on afforestation, but, but there's hardly anyone who sees this as a holistic um uh you know like an overarching concept so what i did <laughs> was to find was to go to geoengineering conferences or climate engineering conferences scientific conferences and just uh like keep a very strong lookout for anybody who might look like a policymaker. <laughs> Um, so, and then just sort of catch them in the corridor and say, uh, hey, uh, I'm doing this research. Uh, do you mind uh, uh, being interviewed? And that worked. I mean, I didn't get very many. I had about eight, nine interviews. Um, but it gave me sort of enough perspective to... Um, to kind of understand the problems and the obstacles that uh, decision makers were facing when it comes to the subject. Mostly that they didn't really know anything about it. It was still very new to many of the ones that were attending the conferences, but the fact that they were attending it meant that they had an interest and they were aware that it was on the agenda and they were trying to understand better what was going on and how to communicate this to their um, colleagues and superiors. So, yeah, that was kind of the approach that I took. Well, let's let's shift a little bit now. Uh, since the beginning of the year, I know you've been a, a postdoctoral researcher at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. Are you going to continue some of this work on, on geoengineering politics there? Or what are, what are some of the projects or, or questions that you're interested in in this postdoc? Yes. Um, at Wageningen, I will be working on two projects at the same time. So over four years, um, I'll be working on the one hand on a project on which will be on geoengineering or the politicization of geoengineering with a particular focus on uh, mitigation deterrence. So 
the idea that um, once you bring these uh, technologies onto the table, which don't exist yet, but they're sort of like a promise in the future that might have effects on the way that we do mitigation or re try and reduce our emissions. And uh, I just started, so I'm not completely sure how I will go through with this project, but I'm, I'm interested in how um, large emitters uh, are, are engaging with geoengineering and whether they're integrating it into their policies and what that does to sort of the other forms of mitigation policies, if, if that has any effect. So that's that's one bit that I'll be working on. And, and the other project that I'm involved with, uh, with my supervisor, Arti Gupta, is going to be on uh, transparency in climate change governance. Um, so uh, sort of the obsession of measuring everything and measuring and managing uh, all the uh, of the emissions that are being saved. I mean, in a good, in a good way, I guess this has much to do with the global stock take now. That's, that's coming up, uh, every couple of years where countries have to come together and report, um, uh, their progress in terms of uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation. Um, and what we're kind of interested in, uh, in, in this concept of transparency, what does it mean? Um, what kind of effects does it have? Who's being transparent towards whom? Uh, what kind of power relations are in there? So looking at it from a critical kind of political science perspective uh, and, and, and seeing if we can say anything useful uh, for the process. What is your perception on the or knowledge of the landscape of the different actors who are involved in climate change governance globally? To me, when you think about transparency, or when you mention transparency, it's it's transparency in between who and for what reason, I, I would think. And do you have a, a good understanding of which, which actors you're going to focus on there and through what processes are trans is transparency going to become important? Uh, we're kind of just starting the project in the sense that uh, Monday was the first day for the two new PhDs who are joining the project. So from so we're we're still in the process of figuring out exactly what we will be doing. But I think um, one of the main focuses will be on countries. So um, one part of this project is to build up a database uh, of 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 the behavior of countries, whether they are actually um, you know, following this transparency framework, whether they are submitting, uh, whether they're submitting their reports and what these reports contain and what does it actually mean? Like, how effective is this transparency process when it comes to countries? Because it seems that nobody has actually looked at that. So just to have an overview of, of how effective uh, this process is within the framework of the, of the UNFCCC. Um, but I think we'll also be involved more uh, with the non-state actor level. So there's uh, there's an initiative um, coming up where um, non-state actors are trying to complement or supplement the process of the global stock take by making more transparent how non-state actors are contributing to climate mitigation, uh, what businesses are doing, what NGOs are doing, what communities are doing, and in that way trying to motivate um, governments to take uh, more ambitious or make more ambitious goals, decide on more ambitious goals. Um, and yeah, as to that so it's it's a broad overview between sort of the non-state actors on the one hand and the state actors on the other hand, and what exactly we will we as a sort of small project will be doing. That's um, it's still open. I think we still need to discuss that. But as far as I understand, at least I know that 
one focus will be on the states themselves and and how much we go into the non-state actor realm we'll have to see what interest do you have for developing methodologically do you have an interest in pursuing network analysis as a tool to understand uh, this policy process, or are you more interested in going down uh, like a discursive, qualitative route? That's a good question. I also don't quite know yet. I think network analysis is—it's um, basically—it's a lot of work. For um, sometimes you get good outcomes, but sometimes you just you spend you spend a lot of hours with data, um, and so. Um, for now, for the beginning of the project, I think what I'm going to focus on is to uh, get out some of the things that I already worked on during the PhD, but that are not quite published yet or that are not, um, yeah, that haven't really made it out into the wide world. So that'll be what I think the focus of the network analysis part will be more to get things published rather than doing a new network analysis. Uh, and I think in terms of data, I think, um, uh, sorry, in terms of applying methods to the project we will see i think mostly it will be more of a discursive approach maybe also an interview approach i really enjoy kind of talking to policymakers and understanding things from their perspective so that's definitely going to be part of it um yeah and uh, if it comes down to uh if we find out that one of the research questions for my field within the transparency project for example will be to map out who's involved in in transparency in making things transparent and who who is uh like who who is being made transparent i think that could that might open up a pathway for a more network type uh analysis so so maybe that could be an option but it's still 4 years time and we're yeah, we're still at the beginning of trying to figure out exactly what we're going to do. What courses are you teaching at the moment? We're teaching a course on international environmental politics, and I've given a lecture on non-state actors, so that kind of fits to the research that I've been doing. Um, and for today, I'll be part of a simulation that a colleague of mine is doing on, on climate finance. So students will be getting together to discuss how to allocate funds uh, for what projects and and I'll be leading one of the simulations. So that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. What are, What is your impression of teaching in general? Is it something that you enjoy? Is it something that you think burdens a lot of time away from you? Is it? What is your What is your relationship there? Uh, for now, I've had the um, uh, I've been in a very lucky position of not having to teach uh, too much. So I haven't had like any uh whole courses or anything that I, I've been obliged to teach. So for now, for me, teaching is really something that I see as a fun exercise and that I enjoy engaging with the students and uh, making up new kinds of interactive sessions and uh, applying new methods and things like that. So I really enjoy it. Uh, especially I enjoy teaching the things that I've, you know, had had now a couple of years to prepare and to refine and to learn about. So um giving similar lectures but in different courses and and just making those better to the point that you really you you work in all the feedback that you get from the students and and also you understand the subject better so i'm i really enjoy teaching those kinds of lectures but i really like also the simulation and the interactive part um and yeah being a postdoc now in wageningen i don't really have any teaching obligations for the next four years so i can do as much as i want in a sense <laughs> and that's a really nice situation to be in so i look forward to it i for now i really enjoy it the benefits of a postdoc here are somehow flexible I'm, i also feel the same 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, for those who are interested in finding more about your work or connecting with you online, do you want to guide people to maybe your Twitter handle uh, or another website where they can find more information? Certainly. Uh, on Twitter, it's at uh, Ina Moller. So M-O-L-L-E-R. Ina and then Moller. Uh, and uh, I have a website on the on the Wageningen University uh, webpage. So I think if you just Google Ina Möller and then Wageningen, you'll you'll get onto my personal site. And um, there's a, a couple of articles that I've published and a sort of general description of the projects and uh, and my email address. So please feel free to contact me if you have any questions or would like to discuss or chat. I'm happy to chat on Skype or. Yeah, have conversations with people if they're interested in a particular issue area. Yeah, thanks, Ina, so much. That was really interesting. Thanks again for coming on. Of course. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. You can find more information about all of our guests in the show notes for each episode. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, where you can share and further engage with the content, as well as give us your recommendations for future guests. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and it can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of a larger project called the Environmental Social Science Network, www.essnetwork.net. On the website, you can become a member and use all of the resources provided for free. This includes webinar videos, a blog, knowledge base, and using the website as a platform for your own projects. We appreciate your support.